1: Republican candidates continue to campaign ahead of the second Republican primary debate hosted by Fox Business at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California on September 27th. Recent polling suggests that former President Trump is continuing to gain support in the wake of his criminal indictment in Atlanta, Georgia, for his alleged role in attempting to overturn the election results in that state. And its primary purpose is election interference. And we're not going to let this election be stolen from us. Meanwhile, the U.S. Senate returns to session this week after their August recess. And aside from working to avoid a government shutdown, Congress will also weigh disaster relief funding for Hawaii and Florida after the Maui fires and Hurricane Dahlia. For a conversation on this and more, we bring in our panel, Fox News senior political analyst Juan Williams, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon, AEI resident fellow Matthew Cottonetti, and Fox News audio political anchor and Washington correspondent Jared Halpern. Matthew, uh, the trajectory of Donald Trump's polls is really something to watch.
3: It is, Brett. It never changes. Uh, to the degree it does change, it gets higher after every time uh, Donald Trump is indicted or some uh, piece of legal news uh, surfaces. And I think the bottom line is that Trump has benefited benefited politically within the Republican Party from all of the indictments. Um, and trial news. It's caused Republicans to rally around him. It's also taken away all the attention from the other Republican candidates.
1: Juan, it's almost as if Democratic pundits are suddenly realizing this weekend in particular and the Wall Street Journal poll in particular that there may be a vulnerability for the president here even against a guy who's been indicted four times and will face trial during a campaign season in '24. That's right, Brett. He could win. Uh, If you're the Republican
2: nominee, the nominee of a major American party uh, on the ballot, November 2024, you could win. I think lots of people were surprised when he won in 2016. Um, And of course, then uh, it creates a sense of anxiety, I think, but also energy among Democrats who oppose him. But I think you're right. I think Right now, we are at the end of the preseason. You know, I think the regular season is going to be a long regular season in terms of American politics kicks off with the Fox Business Channel debate. Uh, So to me, what we have here is a new dynamic, not only in terms of the timing, but you think about the first debate, which you moderated uh, with Martha McCallum. In Milwaukee, at that debate, it really everybody said, well, it's going to really be about Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida because he was second to Trump in so many polls. And he looked like the alternative to Trump. As we enter the second debate, it doesn't look, it looks like he's fading to, to pick up on what Matthew was saying about Trump continuing to rise. It looks like DeSantis, on the other hand, is slipping, not only in polls, but in donations, uh, even in changing his campaign staff. And at this juncture, what you'd have to say is that Vivek Ramaswamy uh, is now, he was the center of attention at your debate. I think he's likely to be the center of attention at this debate. He's made controversial comments about Ukraine and U.S. funding for that effort, about sending troops to Mexico, about climate change, about race. Um, It seems as if, uh, if Trump doesn't show up, and there's no indication if he will at this moment, that it'll be another
1: debate in which everyone's talking about Vivek Ramaswamy. Maybe so. Jared, uh, the former president, heading to Iowa this weekend, uh, going to an Iowa State Iowa football game. Uh, clearly, no indications that he's going to show up for the second presidential debate. Nor uh, would his political advisors say he should. At looking at these mm-hmm. poll numbers, but you look at the others. Nikki Haley saw a little bit of a bump at first. She's seen she's now in second in the recent poll in New Hampshire. Uh, But we're talking about 10 percent, maybe 13 percent at most for Governor DeSantis or others against 56 or 46. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's huge leads here. How is it possible that that could turn around quickly?
0: I don't know if it will turn around quickly. And I think that's what you hear from a lot of Republican, uh, you know, folks, is that it doesn't have to happen quickly. Now, probably what does need to happen sooner rather than later is a coalescing, right? Is there somebody who can emerge as that clear alternative, as that clear number two, somebody who can, you know, shrink this race down as it gets closer to Iowa, closer to New Hampshire, closer to the other primaries to maybe just a two candidate race? That seems to be, uh, I think, what that last debate uh, was about you did not hear an awful lot from the other candidates about who wasn't on that stage. It was a lot of back and forth about their differences with each other, trying to disqualify each other uh, from the conversation. And I think that's because there is a strategy here that uh, this is a race that that is going to have to start shrinking in size, and somebody's going to have to coalesce sort of the non-Trump vote uh, for this uh, dynamic to change because that dynamic has changed. I'm not sure. Uh, that that former President Trump's thoughts on participating in a debate have shifted. I think it's notable too to see the strategy of uh, the president, President Biden, who um, at least so far his campaign is not paying a lot of attention to the Republican race. But you look at a lot of the ads now that they are getting ready to to line up and put out here as football season starts. Those big TV audiences trying to kind of educate. Uh, the voting public on his economic record, kind of a tale of of two different narratives. Right. You have uh, some signs that the administration is eager to point to about an improving economy, but at the same time, really struggling to change the public perception with, with the president's poll numbers, especially as it relates to the economy in the mid 30s, if not lower in some polls.
1: Matthew, last thing on the GOP primary, and that is, you know, there was still talk about Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin possibly getting into the race late, but, you know, it, it, that he's going to be on some galloping white horse and rescue the party is, it seems a fetch. Where is his lane? If, if he gets in, who is he taking from and how would he, you know, mount something successful against the former president?
3: I think Glenn Youngkin's lane is in 2028. I think if he has a successful uh, election this year in Virginia, flipping uh, the Virginia legislature to Republican, that would go a long way to show um, Youngkin as a national leader and a potential future leader of the GOP. But right now, the fundamental fact of this primary is Republican voters like Donald Trump. They think Donald Trump was a successful president. They think that Donald Trump is being unfairly attacked by Democratic prosecutors and the Biden administration. And I really don't see anything uh, changing uh, with Republicans' views and opening up a a lane for a late entry in this race. 2028, of course, is a different story.
1: Juan, there are more and more Democrats who are whispering about President Biden and saying maybe he is too old when you get to you know, above 60 percent of Democrats saying he's too old. And then overall, the number being north of 70 percent in not just one, but three recent polls that starts to send alarm bells inside the Democratic establishment.
2: I don't think there's any question Biden's going to have to find a way to deal with the age issue, uh, because in specific, as you mentioned, it's clear that Democrats have a problem (laughs) with the age issue. It's not something that's being manufactured by critics on the right to undercut Biden. Uh, You know, to my mind, he's going to have to do more television. He's going to have to do more travel. Uh, His wife has tested positive for COVID, but if he doesn't, he's off on a trip that will take him around much of the world. He's going as far as Vietnam. That's the way that he's going to have to deal with questions about age by showing himself to be an active and engaged president. You know, so far, the Republicans have not had success in making Hunter Biden, his troubled son, the big issue. So far, we've had no recession. So, it, you know, from the Biden campaign choice, it's saying it's thinking, wait a minute. When people have trouble with Biden, they talk less about the economy or his son that now they talk about age. With Trump, people talk about, well, we have problems with, you know, possible indictments, corruption, autocratic tendencies.
1: But the age issue remains the yoke around Biden's neck. Which is quite something, Jared, if you think about that, just the recent polling Mm -hmm. that that's that high concern about his age, that he's not up to the job. But yet the 77-year-old Donald Trump, the the those poll numbers are fine. He can handle it according to Democrats yeah. and Republicans.
0: Well, I was going to make that, that point too, right? It's not as if uh, this is a generational choice if that's what the, the nomination picture uh, looks like. I, I think, listen, the White House has fielded a lot of questions about the president's age, about his ability to— kind of uh, keep up with the the pace of the presidency and again and again that we are told to look at his record, look at his achievements, look at the accomplishments he's been able to get through Congress and been able to go on these trips to Juan's point. I think the other thing that you hear sometimes, too, is that it's one thing to say that you know, you have a concern about somebody's age, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat. Elections ultimately, though, are a binary choice. Right. And so I don't know how big an issue age might be if it is a rematch between the former president and the current president. Right. You are going to have, as I said, it's not a generational uh, shift between the two. And it's going to be a choice largely focused, I think, on policy and And in which direction they want to take the the, the economy and foreign policy and everything else. And so I do think that it's raising questions right now. I'm not sure yet how big of a campaign issue it will be, given the the current sort of trajectory of this race.
3: Panel, we'll hold it right there. From the Fox News Podcasts Network.
0: I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. And
1: Matthew, we talked about the U.S. Senate being back in today. We heard from the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, gave his first speech since that medical issue of some kind, that freezing that he had in Kentucky. It's his second one of those in recent months. The doctors came out and said he's okay to continue working. Clearly, he wanted to show uh, that he was vital enough to uh, to deliver that speech although clearly it's a softer delivery for Mitch McConnell than we've seen in dozens of other speeches on the Senate floor. Um, but yet that issue, too, and then you have Dianne Feinstein, from Democrat from California, also, you know, with uh, calls among Democrats that she should step down. There are two senators that the age issue comes up again, and that doesn't benefit Biden either.
3: Right, Brett, there's been a long-standing tacit agreement among senators of both parties that you don't raise health issues regarding members of the other party. And so whether it was um, John Fetterman of Pennsylvania or earlier a Republican Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois, uh, Diane Feinstein's age, the muted response that greeted Mitch McConnell's episode last week, senators have been reluctant to talk about Health. I do think, though, that it's becoming a problem for the Republicans because uh, what they need now is uh, Mitch McConnell's full attention and expertise and familiarity with the rules if they're going to get through the next month uh, and uh, fund the government and um, get the aid to the disaster zones in Hawaii, California, and Florida, uh, as well as additional aid to Ukraine. Right now, a lot is riding on the Republican Senate leader, and that raises the stakes for Mitch McConnell, who uh, clearly um, is laboring under some some bad health conditions.
1: Yeah, Juan, well, I mean, Matthew makes a good point. I mean, we're he- heading to another fiscal cliff, another government shutdown showdown, and the House Republicans are saying, we were elected not to sign these big omnibus spending bills, not to continuing doing it like we've been doing it, Uh, Mitch McConnell's saying we need this supplemental funding that takes us through the end of the year. Uh, The House is saying not so fast. So that's right. It could be a big showdown.
2: Well, it's an intramural showdown between Republicans in the House and Republicans in the Senate. The Senate has passed, I believe, 12 of 13 appropriation bills uh, on a bipartisan basis uh, with McConnell as the leader of the GOP caucus in the Senate. Now you have, as you just said, the house, where you know, not only are they talking about a sh- possible shutdown, they're talking about maybe impeaching President Biden. I think you, you're just not going to see support for that coming from a Republican Senate caucus led by Mitch McConnell. To my mind, you know, this is the government funding is the big issue, and again, Mitch McConnell has made a decision here on the basis of the thought that. Past shutdowns have not benefited the Republican Party with voters, that the Republicans often get blamed. It's just not good politics. But the politics in the House is such that a lot of the people, especially at the far right in the Freedom Caucus, see this as performative. I mean, they see this as showing the voters that they're in there fighting against government spending. They're in there fighting against big government. Um, and I just think there's a a different perspective House to Senate. And that conflict is going to come into sharp relief in the weeks to come. And Jared,
1: you know, for House Speaker McCarthy, so far he's been able to herd the cats pretty well. He's been able to mm-hmm. negotiate uh, the far right side of his party, kind of give them a hat tip here and there, but actually get them on big bills that have passed. Uh But on this showdown, it seems like it could be tougher, both on the impeachment and the funding situation, Uh, if he has to pass some bills controversial in on the right side of the party with Democratic votes, does House Speaker McCarthy survive?
0: We've asked that question a number of times over the last year, haven't we, Brett? about different. And you're right. He has been able to kind of herd these cats, so to speak, and has been kind of a you know i don't want to say critical of the media but it certainly let the media know that in his view he has been underestimated and uh watch what he can do to to get through this uh episode it does appear that he is going to have to take some concessions on some short term spending bill probably without uh the the support of some of the the right flank of uh, the house republicans and some, some Democrats are going to go along with that. What that ultimately looks like, I, I think, is probably going to be key to what his future his speaker looks like. Is he able then to maybe mitigate some of that by having these impeachment votes, by having contempt of Congress votes, things like that? But again, those are not the easiest votes to get through a, a closely divided Congress either. In uh, the case of uh, an impeachment vote, you have uh, several Republicans who represent districts, districts, uh, that were won by President Biden. It is a tough vote for them to take. And so it's going to come down, as our colleague Chad Pergram so often says, to the math and what that math ultimately looks like, not just with a spending bill, but with a host of other issues that that a lot of Republicans would like to see get done as it relates to these investigations of of President Biden and his family.
1: Matthew, on the international front and speaking about uh, testing the president's vitality, he heads over to India for the G20. Amidst a time where China is flexing its muscle, uh, so is Russia not relenting in in Ukraine. Saudi Arabia is holding back oil production again, extending that to the end of the year. Uh, a lot of different countries seeming to thumb their noses at the United States in one way or another. Uh, the president heads to the G20 in that environment.
3: Biden's age and uh, aloof uh, behavior is making the world a more dangerous place, Brett. And I want to focus on China for a moment because, you know, for the past several months, the administration has been trying to reach some sort of detente with China, sending high ranking officials from Secretary of State Blinken to Treasury Secretary Yellen, most recently, Commerce Secretary Raimondo. Uh, leading up, I believe it was thought. Uh, to a meeting between Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping at this G20 summit. Xi Jinping, of course, rebuking that notion, saying he's not going to attend. Once again, these uh, attempts at outreach are met with a closed fist by China. And you'd think that the administration would begin to wake up to that.
1: Yeah, Juan, China's an issue. And they they continue to send people over there. They continue to get rebuffed. Um, Doesn't seem like it's changing. You know, I think we have to
2: be measured in our thinking here. To me, the biggest threat is if they start to sell, you know, U.S. Treasury bonds and the like. I mean, they're huge holders of American assets. And if they did that, you know, it could definitely cause some turmoil, not only here in the United States, but in world markets. And that's related to the fact that the Chinese economy seems to be struggling. Uh, you know, a little bit of a surprise. He went back. We went back a few decades. Everyone was saying China, the second largest economy in the world to ours, is the economy that's on the rise and that they are, you know, a threat to challenge U.S. for economic uh, supremacy in the world. Well, it's not the case at the moment. And it seems like there are all these sort of secondary fights, Ukraine and Russia, But also, more importantly, I think, if that's the way to put it, maybe not, but what's going on with Taiwan and their insistence on maybe taking over and violating Taiwanese sovereignty. I mean, it's very complex, but it clearly, you know, they have made signs of military aggression whenever Taiwan signifies that they don't want to have China involved in their affairs. To my mind, uh, we have to look for an avenue to try to maintain good, positive relations with China. I don't think it helps us to make a show of aggression unnecessarily, because if it comes to that, you really are talking about world war. Yeah,
1: last thing, Jared. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's true. Yet the efforts to get a military to military, you know, uh, phone operation to avoid any. Uh, possible elements or, or accidents that lead to a world war. Uh, the Chinese have not set that up as of yet. Um, the BRIC countries, this is Brazil, Russia, India, China, are expanding now their membership, and a lot of those countries are trading using their own currencies, no longer the U.S. dollar. So there are big changes
0: afoot. There are in that region, and I think the U.S. is, is trying to show that that not, not all of those changes uh, are to the benefit of China. Look at the the second leg of the trip that President Biden is taking, first to India for the G20 summit, but then President Biden uh, going to Vietnam for um, a major uh, meeting with with that country's leader to try and elevate uh, their, their diplomatic status, something that Vietnam had sort of been reluctant to do, given obviously its uh, historically close ties with China. But again, another move by the administration here to, to try and, reduce the uh, sphere of influence in that region of of China. So it seems to be almost a, a two pronged approach, right? You do have an awful lot of outreach from the administration side, cabinet secretaries, delight going over there, trying to sort of thaw this relationship with Beijing, trying to set up a meeting between President Biden and President Xi uh, for later this year. And at the same time, also trying to strengthen a lot of these uh, alliances in the region as you saw at camp david between japan and, and south korea again a lot of that i think uh, a strategy of the u.s trying to broker these partnerships that that you know aren't necessarily in china's best interest
1: all right panel we'll follow it all uh, now for a bit of history september 5th 1774 the first continental congress convened in carpenter's hall in philadelphia Delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies met to discuss a response to the intolerable acts that sought to rein in the colony's revolutionary behavior. Prominent revolutionary leaders attended the Congress, including future presidents George Washington and John Adams. The First Continental Congress was the first major step in the road to the American Revolution. As the Congress reconvened, the following year, the first battle of the war had already taken place in Lexington and Concord. Good book about that coming out October 10th. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com, wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. For Juan, Matthew, and Jared, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.